I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34 for one more time. Exodus 34. While you're finding that, it's Genesis, Exodus. It won't be too hard. While you're finding that, let me tell you that next Sunday, one week from today, uh, we are going to, in this room, during our worship assembly, talk about plans that we have for the direction and the vision for what God is doing in us and through us here at the Golf Course Road Church. I want you to be here next Sunday. We're gonna roll all this out to you, and by God's grace, uh, we will be in a great place next Sunday to really uh, answer God's call for the Golf Course Road Church of Christ here in Midland, Texas, where he put us nearly 60 years ago. So be here for that, but then also know that starting on the 25th, which is two weeks from today, we're gonna ask our entire church family during the Bible class hour, uh, all of our adults, if we're, we're going to meet in that gathering place, all of our adult Bible classes are going to be in that gathering place because we're going to have to talk through some of what we're going to roll out next Sunday. We want to do it in this more of a back and forth kind of conversational uh, venue. And so just be aware of that. You're going to be getting emails and, and, and you'll be hearing about it as we get closer. I just, I didn't want it to catch you completely off guard. So just be aware of those things, okay? Uh, one day there was a man and he was having a very personal, very audible conversation with God. And he said, God, I want to know, how do you experience time? And God said, well, to me, a million years is like one minute. And the man said, God, how do you experience money? And God said, well, to me, a million dollars is like one cent. And the man said, God, would you please give me one cent? And God said, sure, in just a minute. <laughs> we have a tendency to view God the way we think he ought to be, more than the ways he has actually revealed himself to us. Now, God has told us and shown us exactly who he is. There shouldn't be any secrets God has shown us, I think most importantly, in Jesus Christ, exactly who he is and what he's after and what he's all about, right? The, the word of God, the will of God, the character of God is made flesh and blood in Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father, right? So we know who God is because we've seen Jesus. Another way God has revealed himself to us is in scripture, in the Bible, his holy word. And one of the most important places, I think, where God reveals himself to us in scripture is in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, God defines his glory, it says. God says, this is my glory, this is my name, he says. This is me, this is who I am. And God describes himself here in his own words. This is the longest passage in the whole Bible where God's talking about God. And I think it's the most important. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, verse 5, and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin." And we've spent all year getting these words of our God, getting his glory inside us. 
These words that describe our God's eternal nature, these holy words that define our God's eternal characteristics, these words we've said are going to be who we are. These holy words, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, we're going to become, as a church, this. We're taking our cue from 2 Corinthians 3 that says, we all reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. Personally, it's been, I think, uplifting and encouraging to explore God's eternal attributes and to call each other to reflect more of our God's love and forgiveness and faithfulness and patience. This is how we live together, right? This this is also how we share the good news with others. This this is one of the ways we attract people to God. These are the words. These are the things we use to to put on our church website and in our bulletins. This is what we put on our t-shirts and on our posters. This is how we advertise God. This is how we promote the church. I've said it several times. If more people knew this, about our God, they'd break down the doors to get in here and get closer to him. But what do we do with God's less than marketable qualities? What do we do with God's other attributes? There are other parts of God's eternal nature that are clearly revealed in scripture that rarely make it into our church systems and sermons. And verse 7 is one of them. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. All right, we got to wrestle with this one. This is a hard one. It's tough to understand. Because at first glance, it sounds like God is contradicting every single thing he just said about himself earlier. And I'll tell you, I always leave this part out. When I read this passage, you've noticed. Some of you have called me out on it. I've been doing it all year long. This is such a beautiful and powerful firsthand description of God's love and grace and forgiveness and faithfulness. I almost never read this last phrase because it feels like a downer to me. It feels like it ruins it almost. And I used to feel really guilty about that until I started checking. Most of the biblical writers who quote this passage leave that last line out. This passage is quoted word for word eight other times in the Old Testament and seven of those eight times the author leaves out this last phrase. Nehemiah 9, all three times in the Psalms, Joel 2 and Jonah 4, they don't mention this. Every one of those passages ends this description of God by talking about his love and his faithfulness and his forgiveness of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so I feel like I'm in pretty good company here. The only place this passage is requoted in its entirety is in Numbers 14. This is, uh, 
This is right after the 12 spies have come back from Canaan. They've got the milk and honey report and nobody wants to go to the promised land. Remember the story? You know the story. Oh, the the people are too big and strong. The cities are too large and fortified. We can't do it. Joshua and Caleb, they stand up. No, we can do it. We can take this land. The Lord is with us. And the people want to stone Caleb and Joshua. And they rebel against Moses and Aaron. And God says, all right, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to wipe out all these people. I have to. And so Moses pleads with God. Verse 17, he says to the Lord, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. Just like you told me who you are, God, I want you to act that way now with your people. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, Moses says, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them just as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the people who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. God says, I have forgiven them. And here's their punishment. I have forgiven them. Here's their punishment. Okay. We're going to do a little theology together this morning, okay? And don't be afraid of the word theology, all right? Theology is nothing to be afraid of. It should be embraced. We're all theologians. Amen? Theology just means thinking about God, studying about God. We do this all the time, okay? Here's the theology. This is the part of our faith where we have to use our brains a little bit, okay? Keep in mind, God's people have been wrestling with this Exodus 34, verse 7, especially this last part. We've been wrestling with this for thousands of years. And if we had two or three hours in here and we got everybody involved, we'd probably come up with at least a dozen different explanations for what verse 7 means. But we don't have two or three hours, And I know there's a thin line between a long, drawn-out sermon and a hostage situation, so I want to be careful with this. But I do want to give you my my thought process, okay? I I want to kind of show you my understandings of this verse. And so, uh, Exodus 34, 5 through 7, we've been reading it all year long, and I've read several commentators who believe that this verse means... God does not forgive unconfessed and unrepentant sin. Okay, that's one possibility. Remember, this revelation of God's glory is given in the context of the great sin of the golden calf. And it can be argued the people never actually repent of this sin. The Bible says they mourn and they remove their ornaments, whatever that means, but they never repent And so this might be saying that that sin, if it's not confessed and repented of, won't be forgotten just because it happened a long time ago. The passing of time does not remove sin. Confession and repentance and forgiveness, that's what removes sin. And I believe that. I'm just not so sure you get that 
out of this passage. And so maybe this verse means God forgives sin, but he doesn't take away the consequences. Okay, that, we get that, right? We understand what that means. We, we know that a, like a crack baby is punished by the actions of his mother, not by anything he did, right? The consequences and, and alcoholism and other addictions and, and drug abuse and physical and emotional abuse and divorce and violence and abandonment. I mean, all those things have an adverse impact on the children who are just innocent descendants in the whole thing. And I believe all that's true. However, I'm not sure we get that out of this verse because this verse puts it on God. God is the one who's doing the punishing here. The children and the grandchildren, three or four generations, he says. To me, this seems like a little more than maybe just natural consequences of sin. And so maybe this means God punishes the children and the grandchildren who repeat the sins of the parents. We already know God never punishes people for sins they did not commit, right? That's very clear in Ezekiel 18 and, and most of the Bible. So this might be speaking to a pattern of sin that's passed on, maybe a, a sinful mindset or a worldly attitude or a rebellious practice that's instilled by the parents and then continued by the kids, Kids do what their parents do, right? I saw a bumper sticker, good night, it was 30 years ago, I bet, said kids don't say the darndest things, kids say what their parents say. And we know that's true, right? You ever punished one of your kids for doing something you used to do when you were a kid? Man, that's an eye-opener, isn't it? I hate it when that happens. Like our girls, they used to sneak Doritos and Cheez-Its into their rooms at night. And I'm like, where do they get this? Where does this come from? Stashing dirty clothes behind the door. What's going on with this? Where do they come up with this? I'd call my mom on the phone and complain to her. You can't believe what your granddaughter's doing. And I'd tell her and she'd laugh. Oh, that's really wild, Alan, really crazy. <laughs> I've got friends. We've got dear friends, good friends that we've known and loved for 30 plus years and they can't understand why their grown children are not faithful to the Lord. They don't understand why their kids aren't members of a church community, a community of faith somewhere. And I'm thinking, good night. You, you took them to ball games and mountain cabins instead of church a lot. You took them to practices instead of Bible class. You made them skip youth group to finish their homework. You, you watched movies with them, but you never read the scriptures or, or prayed with them. You raised them knowing that God is a very important part of your life, but he's not the most important part of your life. If the kids do what the parents do, they're going to be punished too. I think that's what this is saying. And I think it helps to go back a few chapters to Exodus 20, where God's given the Ten Commandments. There's some similar language here. Exodus 20, verse 4, God says, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, earth, in the waters below. You shouldn't bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I think that's 
that's pretty important. Of those who hate me. So I think it's implied, I think it's kind of understood here that the pattern of sin is passed on to the kids. The grown children are sinning in this scenario and so they're punished too. The third and fourth generation of those who hate me, verse six, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I think there's something to be said also about the contrast between God's punishment and God's love. Punishing for three or four generations, but showing love to a thousand generations. Punishing for a short time, but faithfully loving for all time. I think that's important. Exodus 34, I think, is saying the same thing, that God's wrath does not even begin to compare with God's love. Maintaining love to thousands, it says. Some of your translations probably say maintaining love to thousands of generations, but punishing just three or four generations. I think this is a contrast here. The punishment is short. The love is eternal. That's pretty consistent with the picture that we have of our God, right? That's pretty consistent with the whole Bible. His wrath lasts only a day, but his mercy endures forever. That's Psalm 30. His anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Isaiah chapter 54. God says, for a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. Listen, God's wrath and punishment is tiny compared to his faithfulness and his love. I believe that's one of the main points of the Exodus 34 passage. I think it's a contrast and a compare. But I also think it speaks to God's complete and utter holiness. And that's a part of this we can't miss. God's eternal holiness does not allow him to tolerate sin. As he's declaring his name and his glory to his saved and called people here, God's trying to get that point across. He won't tolerate sin. He can't. He's loving, yes. He's compassionate, yes. God is faithful and patient and forgiving. Yes, yes, yes. But he absolutely cannot, will not tolerate sin. And so he's not just going to punish those who sin against him. It is so offensive and repulsive to him that he says he's going to punish the children and the grandchildren too. I think there's some shock factor going on here. I think God is using hyperbole to make a point. Look, I'm holy, okay? You got to understand, I am eternally holy, and I'm not going to put up with any sin of any kind, any time, period. And I wonder, how would your life change if you decided, I'm not going to put up, put up with sin in my life anymore, Reflecting God's glory, I think, requires me to ask you that question this morning. How would your life be different if you decided today, like God, 
I am not going to put up with sin in my life anymore. All right, what do we do with this? We can't ignore it. There's a lot here in the back half of Exodus 34, 7. But I do want us to focus for the rest of our time on just one really big picture, all-encompassing truth that I think this passage points us to, and that's this. Church, we need help. Can I get an amen? We need help. God is holy, utterly, completely, totally, forever holy. And because of his holiness, because of his eternal righteousness, all sin is going to be punished. Every sin is going to be punished. All that goes back to that first sin in the garden in Genesis 3. The Old Testament calls it the curse of sin and death. The New Testament calls it the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. And here's the breaking news. You've sinned. I've sinned. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we are all condemned to die. We're all condemned to be eternally punished because of our offenses against God. You know, in the Bible, every single time God gets mad at his people and punishes them, it's not some arbitrary anger. He's not just lashing out at his people emotionally, okay? When our God gets angry and punishes his people, it's in the Bible not so we can see, oh my word, look how this really mighty and powerful God can really come down on his puny little people. That's not what it is. It's to show us how severe our sins are against our holy God. Be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. It's a requirement. And we're not. We're not holy. We need help. God can't be with us the way we are. He's got to separate from us because of our sin. And Moses knows this. Go back a couple of chapters to Exodus 32. This is the aftermath of the golden calf, and God is ticked. He's going to kill them all. He has to. He's holy, and these people are so obviously not holy. And so Moses tells the people, Exodus 32, verse 30, he says, You've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please, he's talking to God, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses is offering a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. He offers himself. God, if you won't forgive the people on account of my begging, then will you please allow me to sacrifice myself for the people? Will you blot me out of your book and leave their names in? The death of one brings life to the many, right? But God says no. Look at verse 33. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Only the guilty can be punished, Moses. 
You can't just step in and take the people's place. God says, I'm not just going to transfer the people's sin and guilt onto one person. And so God rejects the offer. Not because he doesn't like the idea. We all know this offer from Moses is at the very heart of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think God's telling Moses no because Moses can't handle it. Moses doesn't have what it takes to see something like this all the way through. Remember, Moses is a sinner. Moses is a fallen, broken human being. And if there's going to be a sacrifice, if there's going to be a substitute for the people, it's got to be someone who is sinless. It's got to be someone who is perfect. It's got to be someone who's lived all of life in a righteous and holy relationship with God and with others. That's the great and glorious mystery of the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is perfectly righteous. Jesus Christ is eternally holy. No sin, not one, ever. But our sins, praise God, all of our sins have been taken off of us and they have been placed onto Jesus who took them to the cross and dealt with them once for all forever. He alone is able to bear our sins and guilt. Why? Because he alone is without sin or guilt. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter at the end of chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Doug read uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, at the table, Christ Jesus has become for us our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Jesus does not have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He offers the sacrifice of himself. The good news, church, the very best and greatest news ever in the history of the universe is that God is not angry with you. Not because you're perfect, because you're not. Not because you're faultless, not because you're blameless, because you're not, but because all of your sins, all of them, have been carried to the cross by the Holy Son of God and dealt with right there. Listen, we need help. We need help. We've read Hebrews chapter seven. Such a high priest meets our need one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews chapter nine. Now, Christ Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Jesus' sacrifice is spotless and pure. It's righteous and holy. It is far superior to any sacrifice that's ever been made or ever could be made. 
So his death is able to reach back into time, back all the way to that first sin in the Garden of Eden. And it's able to reach all the way up to the sins you committed yesterday and today and will commit tomorrow right here in Midland, Texas, all the way to the future, that very last sin that will ever be committed on the face of this planet in order to cleanse all of God's people forever. The covenant sealed between you and our holy God was sealed with the holy blood of the Lamb of God, and it is finished. It's done. It's over. And it puts an end to all of the groping and searching and struggling and looking for the pathway to God. Church, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pathway to God, and it's right in front of us. Amen? Amen. Go back to Exodus 34, 5 through 7. What makes some people leave God's church? What makes some people not want to have anything to do with God's church? Is this. A lot of Christians talk about God's love and mercy and forgiveness but they never talk about God's holiness and his willingness to punish. And a lot of other Christians spend all their time talking only about God's holiness and his willingness to punish, and they never ever mention God's love and grace and forgiveness and mercy. And when God decides to show us in Scripture exactly who he is, he gives us both. When God reveals his name, when he reveals his glory to us, it's both. Our God is high and mighty and exalted. He is holy and he will not tolerate sin. And our God is near and approachable and personal. God is love and he will erase our sins. It's both. And it only makes sense in Jesus. Now listen, our God does not grade on a curve, okay? The point of this life is not to get to the end of it and have your good deeds somehow outweigh all the bad stuff you've done. That's not the deal. The deal is also not to get to the end of your life without having committed any of the really bad sins, whatever that means. The question, the way the Bible defines it is, are you going to be saved from your sin by Jesus Christ? Or are you going to be separated from God because of your sin? Because you do sin. We all do. We're all sinners. Martin Luther called it the problem of the devil, the world, and the flesh. Wow, those are three powerful opponents. And they win their share of the battles. You sinned, right? Me too. So how do we become holy? Because I know I'm not holy. I know I don't feel holy most of the time. How do we become holy? Ivan the fourth was the first ever czar of all of Russia. 
And he was so cruel and so mean and so awful, they called him Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible killed people for sport. He married seven different wives, abused all of them. The stories are that Ivan the Terrible would throw live animals off the top of the Kremlin wall just to watch them die. And when Ivan the Terrible died in 1584, they shaved his head and they dressed him in the robes of a monk, hoping that God would mistake Ivan the Terrible for a holy man and let him into heaven. That ain't how it works. That is not how it works. Our God is a holy God. And he demands that you live a holy and righteous relationship with him. But you don't do that by disguising yourself and hiding under haircuts and robes. You do that by putting on Jesus Christ. By being baptized into the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the Holy Lamb of God. And he becomes your righteousness, your holiness, and your redemption. Amen? Stand with me, church. I want to read from 1 John chapter 3. You know this is one of my all-time favorite passages. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Brothers and sisters, God has revealed himself to us. His love is forever. His compassion is limitless. His mercy is here today and tomorrow for you. His forgiveness is total. And his holiness, which is without question, his holiness, which is utter and complete, belongs to you. It belongs to you in the Lamb of God, the precious Jesus Christ. Praise God. We are blessed. We are richly blessed. May our lives and may this church at Golf Course Road increasingly reflect the glory of our God. Amen.